Welcome to another episode of the Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt. This week, I talk to music attorney Matthew Kaplan Esquire. We talk about what it's like being a music attorney since 1991, I think he said. He's the uh, music attorney for Bright Eyes, Connor Oberst, Barsook Records, which has many great bands like Death Cab for Cutie, not to mention so many more bands and labels that he's worked with throughout the years. We're going to hear all about it. Hope you get something out of this episode. This episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. If you're a musician, a podcaster, voiceover artist, you're a filmmaker, or if you just make videos on your phone, go to the App Store and search for Future Moments because they have an app that'll make your life easier. Thanks for listening. Check out the show notes for links and more information and uh, leave a review. That really kind of helps. But most of all, just enjoy. Matthew Kaplan, thank you for uh, talking to me today. My pleasure. Yeah, well, we'll see. (laughs) Um, So you're a, a music attorney. But really, it should be called like a rock and roll lawyer. Yes, I, I'm, I'm an entertainment attorney with a focus. Most people would say that I'm an indie rock lawyer, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is limiting. But, it, you know, I, I look beyond it. But yes, most of my clients are in the idiom of mm-hmm. indie rock and indie pop and stuff like that. Yeah, it's limited in the terms of genre. But the jobs you do for them are pretty, pretty vast. Yes. Yeah, so it's not a typical lawyer. You're not, as far as a typical lawyer, what are you actually doing for them? Besides keeping, you're not keeping them away from drug charges and such. My father, bless his memory, mm-hmm. was a lawyer. He was, a, in his view, and in, in my view, he was a real lawyer. He had an office in Jersey, in a town. You bought a house, you got divorced, you got drunk <laughs> driving. What? A busy lawyer at that. (laughs) Phone's ringing off the hook over here. Can we stop Fritz for once? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Getting another one out of jail. (laughs) If you got arrested, if you wanted a divorce, if you wanted to start a small corporation, he could do it. Your dad. That was a lawyer. He was a litigator. He loved being in court. When I started doing this, he did not understand the concept of not being in court. Mm -hmm. He didn't understand why I wouldn't want to be in court. Because that's where the fun is? For him, it was. He loved it. You know, it's dramatic being in court. So the things that I do is very glorified transactional work. You look at contracts and you negotiate them. But it's fun contracts. It's sexy contracts. It's not contracts for buying a house it's not contracts for you know creating something uh two businesses merging it's doing things with musicians and record labels and publishers and you're around creative people yeah you're around a lot of fun creative people probably a lot of people that aren't good with business as far as the artist side go i imagine many of them have decided over the years that because people might have screwed them over in the past they'll just sign anything they gets put in front of them. Mm -hmm. I had one legacy client who 
walked into my office as a referral. What's a legacy client? He was a he was much older than me. Yeah, and he walked into my office, and I had probably twenty records by him. Wow! And he looked at me like I was a stalker. I'm like, you called me, so don't. I'm not a stalker. <laughs> But having all these records by yeah. him and knowing what this person was like as a musician, as soon as he started telling me his tale of woe, mm -hmm. I realized that truly he did a deal in 1978 and he did one in 79 and, you know, 82. And he just kept on signing things over and over without any relation to anything that was in place already. Right. Because to them, to this person... He felt, well, you know, if this person isn't paying me, then I shouldn't really worry about him. Right. So you're helping artists with their record deals, making sure they get paid fairly. Yes. It's going through the contracts and making sure it's standard for what's happening today. Mm -hmm. uh, you do publishing as well as publishing, record deals. Uh, modeling contracts for a number of the clients who are rather attractive, who, uh -huh. are, who are musicians and also go into that realm, book publishing, mm -hmm. uh, for again, it all sort of stems from the music aspect of people who themselves have brought in their horizons. Right. I think a famous story is how the Rolling Stones got screwed out of their U.S. publishing by just their lawyer, Alan, uh, Alan, Klein. Alan Klein, took them to and wrote up a contract where it said Rolling Stones U.S. and they signed that and he owned the Rolling Stones U.S.? Yes. So do you, you know, are you familiar with this story? Yeah. You, you try to get clients not to do that. Right. Uh, the first, when I, when I first started, um, back it must in, be so easy to screw clients if you wanted to. I would, I would never do that. Yeah. And it's very easy for musicians to get screwed is the answer, mm -hmm. whether by a record label manager, lawyer, whatever business right. manager, uh, a musician is a musician. Their, their, their job is to create music. Their job is to perform, to write, to record. It is a vocation in life. Yeah. And they should be living for that. Not necessarily being business people. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, they can sometimes get themselves in trouble. Uh, the first contract I ever saw when I... Uh, before I actually passed the bar, I clerked for a judge... And that judge had earlier in his life been a musician. And he showed me a contract that one of his friends, a person that he was in a band with, had signed with Morris Levy. Mm -hmm. And it truly, really, the gist of the contract was, here's $10,000, never bother me again. Right. And they signed away all their publishing rights for $10,000. Right. For the, for, in perpetuity. In perpetuity. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this happens over and over again, you know. This is how MTV made a living with behind the music. Right. I want to hear some stories about this. Uh, you don't have to name people, but I'm sure you have a lot of crazy stories and interesting stories. But before we get to that, how did you end up getting into this? I saw on your bio that you uh, studied under your, you, what was the word you used? You clerked under Judge Napolitano? Well, I clerked for Judge Napolitano. He was not a musician. Right. Um, Who's now a Fox uh, talking head. Yes, he is. And... Um, he was not that bad then. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in law school and he had just been appointed to the bench mm -hmm. in, in Bergen County in New Jersey. And he was new to it. And we, he was learning as I was 
coming in to, to be a clerk, which is somebody who sort of helps out in the courtroom, helps do research for the judge. Um, well, we might not have necessarily gone uh, seen eye to eye on all topics. He seemed much more reasonable. Yeah. You know, it, there's a persona that he seems to have now. Now that he's on television. On television. That uh, he didn't, definitely didn't have back then in 89, 90. Uh, he did seem to have uh, delusions of grandeur. Uh-huh. Like he seemed to want to be in a higher position than, you know, uh, on a being a judge in Bergen County, you know, be it New Jersey Supreme Court or United States Supreme Court. He had these views and he stayed on the bench for, you know, a good period of time. And then, you know, sort of saw the bright lights of Fox and moved to there. And yeah, I mean, if you're on television, you're not really practicing law. He's on TV pretty much full time. Yes. Right? So and He's, railing against everything that I believe in. So when you got involved in law, did you know what kind of law you wanted to study? I got into law because junior year in college, my father sat me down and said, son, what are you doing in two years? Mm -hmm. Wow. He wasn't even like, where do you see yourself in five years? He was no. like, what are you doing in two years? You're going to graduate. What are you going to do? Uh -huh. And I said, I'm, I'm, I didn't really think about that yet. Yeah. It's like, well, you need to. Mm -hmm. I said, what are my choices? He's like, you can find a job. Or you can go to law school. What were you studying in college? I was a history major. And okay. I was going to Eastman School of Music uh, on the side. Oh, so you're a musician. French I played music. Uh -huh. Again, play? again, a musician is somebody who lives and breathes something as a vocation. I was competent. I played French horn. Uh -huh. uh, I enjoyed playing French horn. I was not a musician, which was forced upon um the realization was forced upon me one day when my professor uh old school french horn player i love the sound of a french horn yeah, it's, it's often the hit, most hidden beautiful instrument of a lot of Beatles yes. songs exactly alan civil was their french horn player oh. play with them uh and my, my professor one day said you don't actually pick up your horn when you're not in front of me mm. he of, could tell he could tell and I sort of looked at him, and I was like, yeah, well... He's like, what do you do? And I'm like, I buy records. As I look around my office... We are surrounded by vinyl records yes. here. Every yeah. wall. And the fact of the matter was, he was right. Yeah. You know, I was not going to be a musician. I, I, I was competent enough to get in, to study with him. Mm -hmm. I was never going to be have that drive to be a musician. Mm -hmm. So, at which point, I sort of stopped doing that in school, and just... Uh, continued at University of Rochester full t with a full uh, gamut of classes. So he forced you to look inside yourself and yeah. you really were like, I don't have enough drive to play. But I have a respect for musicians and I have a love yeah. for music and part of what I learned there never left. Mm -hmm. So, you know, bless him, bless you know, all the other professors that I had prior to that. But I was... There was a point where it was just like, look, I was doing college radio and I did that for four years and had a great time. And then as I was graduating from college, I started writing for some magazines uh, music as well magazines. about music. Yeah. And then, you know, I got into law school and it just, you know, school's easy. 
School's fun. Law school? Not law yeah, school. Yeah, law school's fun. You must be very smart then. No, I took classes <laughs> that I wanted to. And ah. that, that is, I, I think one of the things I learned by going to law school was there are certain classes you have to take to, to graduate. There are certain classes that you have to take to pass the bar. But everything else, just take something that you want to learn. If you want to learn about art law, mm-hmm. which was something that I was really passionate about. I took multiple art law classes. If you're into First Amendment law or if you're into jurisprudence, legal history, you take those. I'm never going to do tax law. Right. You know, estate planning. Fuck. But you have to pass the bar, right? But you have to pass the bar. So you take the classes that that are sort of requisite for learning. And then ultimately you take the bars. You take bar classes. Mm hmm. You take what they call Barbary. And, you know, Which you, sounds a lot better in writing, bar classes, but yeah. it's just uh, not quite what you think it might exactly. be. Exactly. <laughs> but there, there was many times going to a bar thereafter. Yeah. Um, but you know, you t- I took the classes, and I was living out in Oregon, going mm-hmm. to law school, because I wanted to... Um, I was going to Oregon because I wanted to study with this one professor named Len Duboff, who was probably one of the leading professors in art law. Uh huh. Which I thought was going to be would be a fascinating field to Why go into. art law and not music? I was really into it. I think I did something in in undergrad. That seems with, like a very niche. And if you want to find people who make less money than musicians, it's yeah. artists, right? Um, like how many artists actually need a lawyer to negotiate for them while they're alive? Exactly. Uh, I guess you could work for people's estates, and, and there are people who are, and there there are entertainment lawyers who, you know, who's uh, practices focused on dead musicians. Right. Uh, but along the way, as I was there, I realized that I was going to do entertainment law. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was starting to write more and clearly I was buying lots of records. I was going out to gigs, uh, on a regular basis, part of believe because it, I needed the sanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would yeah. study, I'd go to class all day. I'd, you know, go to a study group with these people who, were really into being in law school and I do all that. And then I go out to the local club. You never, you never found the uh, schooling hard. It wasn't challenging. It's easy for you. I mean, it was, it was challenging in the fact that there were some classes I did really well in, and there were a couple that I did badly in. Mm -hmm. Um, And you passed the bar with, but I, but I passed the bar and that's ultimately what mattered. There was, I'm trying to remember which year is second year. I think uh, I took a tax law class. Mm-hmm. Teacher was fantastic. It was literally like sitting in front of David Letterman every day. He was hilarious. Right, that really helps. It it did. Except I didn't learn anything. I, I didn't understand a word that he. You know, I didn't understand <laughs> the topic. You know, you'd go in and say, you know, the the lottery was up to three hundred million dollars, and you'd say, you know, what are the tax ramifications of winning three hundred million dollars? And he'd say, let me win the money, and then I'll tell you. He's like doing top 10 lists all day. Yeah. Um, and when I, I, I passed the class, and, but I didn't do well. Right. It was the only class I didn't do well in. And I went to him and I'm like, I'm really embarrassed. I really want to do better in it. Can I take the class again? And he looked at me and he's like, why the hell would you do that? Yeah. You passed it. Don't worry. You're not going to do this. You don't want to do this in your, in your real life. No one's ever going to ask you the grade you got. Mm. And that all of a sudden I was like, oh, I've never had a client ask me what grade I got in a class. As long as you have the degree. 
And no one has ever asked me why I don't have a degree up on my wall. Mm-hmm. Why I don't have, like, my diploma. You could, you could have been practicing this whole time without an actual law degree. Do you want me to shut the door? Yeah. We could edit that out. Yeah, wait one second. Let me shut the door for a sec. Because Steve is speaking louder than... Um, yeah, you can put that part on. Just the part where... Um, so... I mean, you actually could be practicing all this without an actual law degree, as long as you knew what you were doing, right? I guess. I mean, the answer hypothetically is yes, Mm -hmm. but you're not allowed to do that. It's against the rules. Uh, But when my father graduated from law school and started practicing, they had beautiful parchment diplomas. They they were gorgeous. They were two foot by three foot and, you know, engraved and hand done. So, of course, he got at he went out and got them all laminated right. um, wood and he had them hanging on his office he was very proud by the time i graduated from law school it was a dinky thing it looked all right but it was nothing i wanted to put on my wall mm-hmm. it was just a piece of paper it was a piece of paper so i believe nice all my thick uh, card stock or just like i think it's card stock it's sitting somewhere in my file room somewhere uh-huh. but i've okay. never sat there and said i want to get this laminated i want this on wood i want to show this off and at no point has any client ever walked into my office and said, I don't see a diploma. Right. They were just marveling over the records. Well, God willing. Yeah. Uh, where is Where were you? Where did you graduate from? What law school? Uh, Lewis and Clark in Portland, Oregon. Oh, okay. So did you have to take the bar in New no. York or New Jersey? Jersey. Yeah. Uh, I went to a school that did have one of the foremost art law programs. They had a very, they were one of the top schools in environmental law, mm-hmm. which... Um, I cared not at all about, but you, you care about the environment. Just, I care about the know. environment, but not environmental law. And, but they would have, you know, these discussions, deep philosophical discussions. Do, do Northwest salmon have rights as an individual or as a class? And I said, no, they have rights as to be smoked and put on my bagel, <laughs> things like that. Or, you know, and they just sort of looked at me like, you're not one of us. Go, right, away. Right. Go back to New York. Yeah. Um, when you are bleeding hearts. Yes. Uh, I didn't wear Birkenstocks. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going through a very dark industrial phase Mm -hmm. at that point in time as well. So lots of, you know. Skinny puppy. I saw Skinny Puppy in 87 or 88 with Ed Caspel opening Uh when I was living out there. But no, not that. I was more into the, the, the throbbing gristle psychic TV, like heavy sort of dark Uh neo-fascist. Uh, overtones not pretty you know, it yeah. wasn't something that I you know, I sort of along the way realized well these people are not what I want to be associating myself with <laughs> uh, but yeah so I, I ended up graduating from law school hightailing it back to New York mm-hmm. and then clerked for the judge started my own fanzine mm-hmm. so what was I'd, the fanzine for? it was music yeah just uh, general music I was DJing at, uh, after I graduated from law school, I started DJing at uh, WFDU, and then I had a fanzine called Share the Modern World with Me, mm-hmm. which was a indie pop, garage, poppy punk sort of magazine, Right. did a bunch of issues. So, so you passed the bar, and yes. then you have to choose that you want to go into music law after you pass the bar? Is that how it works? Once I got... Towards the end of law school, I realized the only thing I could do with my life would be entertainment law. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, it was like a destined 
because I wasn't going to do what my father did. I wasn't going to go to court. I, I, I didn't have that in me. Right. Um, I didn't want to go and work for some corporate thing. Uh, while it might have been smart at one point or another in my life. Your court is more like meeting with record labels and working out contracts. Yeah. So when I basically, as while I was clerking, I started managing a band or mismanaging a band. Uh-huh. Uh, what, is, what band was that? They were called Our American Cousins. Uh-huh. They were a sort of East Village band uh, back in, you know, sort of 90, 91, 92. Mm-hmm. Why do you say mismanaged? I don't think I was a very good manager. Mm-hmm. How different is managing than being an entertainment lawyer for a band? There are responsibilities as an entertainment lawyer where you're truly looking at contracts and looking after the business aspect. Uh, as a manager, you're looking after their daily lives mm. and the day-to-day activity of, of the artist. But you're, you're trying to find new opportunities yes. for them. And as an entertainment lawyer, you do that as well, right? A bank, True. a bank can come to you and you can find them a record contract. Yes. And negotiate it. Ideally, that is what that is the majority of what I do with my day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why did I mismatch? I, I didn't necessarily mismatch a band. The band, uh, the, the guitar player and bass player were married and then got divorced. Uh, they went through. Was about, that your fault? No, not at all. <laughs> uh, they went through about three or four lead singers over the years. Uh-huh. I would get record labels to come out to see them. I would be really excited. Guys, you know, we got this, this record label coming out. And you'd have, you know, the guitar player and bass player in the middle of a divorce. And, you know, they'd be like, why does it look like the band is about to explode and mm. spit at each other? Right. Like, oh, they're getting a divorce. Now, this makes sense when you're, you know, Fleetwood Mac. And, and you can sort of keep it together because right. you're making mint every day yeah the money's already rolling in. yes when, when you're a band in the east village as good as you are it's just like wow you must really want to do this yeah because we're not making any money i always say that the thing that keeps a band together the most is money i don't think the stones would still be playing together if it wasn't for no they wouldn't i mean i can't i and i sometimes wonder like what on earth gets you on stage every day it's mm-hmm. like how much money is enough money mm-hmm. yeah maybe it's the applause it, it could be, you know, and, and I, I actually brought this up on on Facebook or Instagram recently, and an old school musician, you know, who is actually like one of the members of Derek and the Dominoes, mm-hmm. you know, responded like, you just don't understand. I'm like, okay, but the difference is, and, you know, I wanted to really say, well, the difference is, you need, you know, no disrespect, you need to get on stage because, you know, this is how you make money as your livelihood right if you're mick jagger your livelihood is settled yeah doing one more tour isn't gonna make you any more money yeah ultimately to change your life than what it did before right uh what do you think it is is it instead of going to the gym and getting a membership at a gym he's just like i'll dance around on stage and lose weight there must be there must be some pheromone that, you know, he uh-huh. just gets off on that yeah. they sit there and, you know, and it is the applause. It is. And maybe it's just greed. Mm. More, just amassing more and yeah. more. Um, you know, it's interesting over the last year, the different musicians who have decided to retire, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Paul Simons, yeah, these musicians who are doing their farewell tours. Right. And, and yeah, there's a point where, 
the voice goes. Yeah. You're, you don't have the chops that you once did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, you hit that diminishing returns. And, you know, the question is, do you, can you get on stage and give a performance that is legitimate? Right. Um, some people grow old gracefully and other people grow old Madonna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you look at Madonna now and you're like, really? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, at the VMAs, it's like you, you have, you're wearing a grill. You know, <laughs> you're a 70 year old woman, you're wearing a grill in your teeth. Right. Like, what is up with that? Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily a fashion icon anymore. Marianne Faithful has grown old gracefully. Right. Um, I, and look, you know, if that's your thing, you know, if you want to, you know, get on stage and strut, you know, and you can still do it, fabulous. Yeah. Um, if you're doing it with a walker and you're still trying to do splits on stage, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you got to start questioning it. Um, but yeah, there are, there are musicians who just keep on going mm-hmm. because that's, you know, ultimately all they know. How or they to just do. love to play. Or they love to play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look, I've never spoken to Mick Jagger and, you know, I would always give, you know, Keith Richards the benefit of the doubt that, you know, that he loves getting on stage. But, you know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So you mismanaged this band. You caused their divorce. Uh, <laughs> and, and and through them, you know, in a weird way, I can say that the first 10 years of my career mm-hmm. was based on them because they led me to the first band that I ever did a record deal for. When I passed the bar, this band from Connecticut called Monsterland mm-hmm. uh, came to me and you know, we started doing some stuff together and then we ultimately signed the band to Atlantic Records. Mm-hmm. So you, didn't, you, didn't have a, you weren't part of a practice, no. you were just yourself. I, I was sharing a space with my father mm-hmm. um, up in Englewood. With, it was sort of like being 14 years old with him pounding on the wall telling me to turn down the damn music uh-huh. and, and practice real law. Yeah, exactly. Did he, did he not think your brand of law was worthy until the day that I was able not to ask him for money? Right. Yeah. And then he was able to accept the fact that I, I was doing something. Yeah. Isn't uh, that usually the quantifier with parents? Yes. As a parent yourself, I'm telling my daughter, she's seven and a half. It's like having a drunk roommate. It's like all she does is take, take, take. She doesn't, you know, right. do anything to, you know, bring in money into the house. No lemonade stand yet. No, no. She is trying to start up her own YouTube channel. Oh, be careful. Yeah. That's a that's... whole nother topic, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, Monsterland led me to signing them to Atlantic, where I met my wife to be, because mm-hmm. she worked on their video. Okay. So that that was very fortuitous. Yes. And through them, I the first record label that I ever worked with was this label from Delaware called J Tree Records. So wait, so for this band Monsterland, you found a label for them. You yes. got them to come check them out live. We had. They put out a single in the United States and England. Uh, at a time, this was probably ninety two. It came out here on Spin Art and in the UK on Serial Killer, and it got single of the week mm-hmm. in. And I'm trying to remember if it was NME, and and I just sent out all this information to faxed it to all these yeah. record labels. 
back when the fax machine was a heat activated fax uh-huh. that rolled up. It was wonderful stuff. Uh-huh. And I'd be like, come, to, come down to see them at Brownies. So how did you get, how did you have all these labels, fax numbers? I mean, this is... You just sort of, you get somebody You're who, showing some chutzpah, some chutzpah here. Yes. You, you find somebody who has a list yes. and you beg them for that list. Right. Uh, is it, is that, that was part did? of it. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, I was very... I learned from my days of doing a fanzine that you can try to scam things. Mm-hmm. And with the fanzine, it was scamming records. Right. Because that's what I wanted. When I started doing this, it was like, ooh, I need to get a list of every record label. And you find somebody who has that list of every record label or all the employees. Right. There were books, like physical books that were published yeah. every six months that listed you know, all the employees or all the A&R people at all the labels right so this is really the birth of your practice yes Mm -hmm. and so you you got you got these fax numbers you reached out to all these labels with this information that they were just named single of the week which is really smart yeah and you say you you've got to come see them yeah this is Mm -hmm. yeah this is a band that you know both here and in england people are paying attention to you need to come and see this right you know they don't have a deal yet uh but they did on us and you well no they were all one-offs okay and, you know, we luckily found somebody who, you know, who was also a person who I knew personally and had a relationship with and I knew had a good record collection and somebody who I respected musically, uh-huh. Steve Yagowell, uh, who worked at Seed Atlantic. And he came down and said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely. That's, you know, we, we started negotiating a deal and mm-hmm. it was the first real deal that I ever looked at. Uh, now, how do you know at that point what a fair deal is? So, when I had a fanzine, I'd call a record label up and I'd say, I have a fanzine, mm-hmm. send me your records. When I passed the bar, I joined the New Jersey Bar Association for a brief period of time. And I joined the New Jersey Bar Association Entertainment Law Division. And they were a bunch of maybe three people who actually did entertainment law and then probably 10 or 15 people who dreamed of being entertainment lawyers because they didn't like their life. Right. Um, They didn't realize what being an entertainment lawyer was. And I took my knowledge from having a fanzine and I called four different publishers who had the major treatises on entertainment law. Mm -hmm. So instead of calling somebody and and saying, Hey, send me your, you know, $10 album or your $5 single. I can't, I called up a publisher and said, I'm going to write an article on the essential works for an entertainment lawyer. Mm -hmm. Can you please send me a review copy? Nice. And I would be, I would get, you know, five volume sets of of these books. And literally the, the con, the books would have a contract. See, and this is before the internet, so the, like it's yeah. so easy to get information now. Exactly, that we forget how you actually have to, have to work for this. Yeah, time. you have to be um, a little uh, ingenuitive about getting yes. information. And literally, these books would have a sample contract, and it would say, in one column, it would have a contract, and the other column, it would say, if it says X, you should say Y. Mm-hmm. And I went through the contract, page by page, marked it up. My father said, I've been a lawyer for 35 years. Let me look at this thing. He got five pages into it, and he's like, there's no meeting of the minds. There's no parody. I'm like, it's an entertainment law contract. It's right. a record label. There is No, no, there isn't. He's like, 
just sort of walked away stomping his feet. <laughs> um, but I went through it and, you know, marked it up and sent it in and went through back and forth. And we did the deal. Mm-hmm. And Now, what do you do if you think it's a fair deal, but the band doesn't? Um, um, the band wants more. They think they're worthy of more, even though they barely sold anything. They're unknown. I and mean, I've had that happen. I'm sure. Um, well, with this deal, about a month, two months after I did the deal, the attorney for Atlantic Records called me up and said, do you have two hours that you can spare? Mm-hmm. I said, of course. Why? He's like, I want to go through the contract. I want to show you where you went right and where you went wrong. If you ever ask for the things that, went, that you did wrong, I'll say no, but I want you to know right or wrong. And was this me, a negotiating thing on his part, or was he really just like trying to help? He was you? just trying to help. Okay. He was being a mensch. And <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a very big fan of, of people being a mensch. I, I've, since then, I've done it for any number, you know, at least I attempt, or not to be egotistical. I attempt to do so for other people. You're paying you know, it forward. Yeah, because mm-hmm. look, we all start somewhere, and you know, everyone has to do something once. Right. Um, Sometimes so, twice. Or twice. And you know, <laughs> anyone who want, you know, any other lawyers who've ever called me and said, can you explain this? This guy sat there and he didn't have to. There was mm-hmm. no reason for him to do so. Yeah. Um, and we went through it and he was like, look, you did good. You did, a, you did well on this thing. You know, for this deal, you got, you know, whatever he said, you, know, you got a, a B plus. Mm-hmm. If this had been a million dollar deal, I might have advised you to try to get somebody to help you on it. Right. But it wasn't that. Right. Um, to answer your question, my job is to try to get a contract as good as it is, mm-hmm. as it can be. Uh, my job is not to force a client to sign or not to sign. Mm-hmm. And my belief is if they're going to sign it, I, I'm not going to break their arm to tell them not to. If they don't want to sign it, I'm not going to force them to sign it. It's always their decision. My job is to to try to negotiate it to the best point as possible. Um, if they want to sign something that I think is a crap deal, really bad deal, I will have them sign a CYA letter. What is that? Cover your ass. <laughs> right. And literally it's, you have asked me to negotiate this on your behalf, Uh now, is it up to you to renegotiate with the label to get more to make it not a crappy deal? There are times when you can't. Right. The label just won't give more. They won't give more. Yeah, they will say, this is the deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've changed what we're changing. But the COA letter, CYA letter basically says, you know, I've advised you that this contract is not in your best interest. I've advised you that these are the certain points that are not in your best interest. Notwithstanding my advice, you're agreeing to sign it. You will not hold me liable. Right. Cover your ass. Yeah. Because what you don't want is the client coming back six months, a year, five years later Mm -hmm. and saying, why did I do this deal? Mm -hmm. We're about to film our behind the music. Well, that didn't ever happen. But the concept of why did you make us sign the deal? Um, And my answer is always, I didn't. It is your decision. I told you what was good. I told you what was bad. And, you know, certain cases, you signed a letter saying that I've advised you that it wasn't in your best interest. You decided to do so. Right. Uh, you want a story? I will give you a story. You'll okay. appreciate this. Yeah. Um, I've done some hip hop over the years. Mm-hmm. Not a huge amount. Uh, I'm not adverse to it, but uh, it is not something that I, I've focused my career on. And early on, I 
uh, had an artist who came in with his cousin, his manager. And the artist sat in my office, and this is when I was still sharing an office space with my father. And he was talking about the bitches and the hoes. And your dad's like, don't you bring these people in. <laughs> no, but I can assure you his very formidable uh-huh. uh, assistant walked into my office and she looked down at him and she said, if you say bitch or hoe one more time, I will throw you out wow. on your ass. He quieted down. Uh-huh. But he got a, we got a deal and we got the contract in. I marked it up. I sat with the artist and said, look, this is not a very good deal. These are the changes I've asked for. And we, and I, he was like, okay, send it out. The manager said, send it out. I sent it to the attorney for the label. Mm-hmm. And the, the, I get a phone call from the attorney saying, yeah, you marked up the contract. I'm like, well, yes, you know, that's my job. It's like, okay, well, understand this. Take it or leave it. I'm like, are you going to send me a res- uh, response on the contract? This, nope. is, this is my response. Wow. Your client wants to do the deal? Fine. Right. You don't want to do it? I don't care. Yeah. And I brought the client back in, and I'm like, look, you know, you saw all the changes, and I told you all these things that needed to get changed and how this isn't necessarily good for you, blah, blah, blah. They're not willing to make any changes. And the manager's like, this is the deal, though. We got to do the deal with this label. The artist's like, we got to do the deal. Mm-hmm. They're going to they're gonna make me a star. I'm like, oh, right. no, no. So I call the lawyer back. I'm like, eh, look, they're willing to sign it. He sends me over execution draft of the contract. Before I hand them the contract to sign, I'm like, here's a, co- here's a CYA letter. What's a CYA? Uh, there's a letter. I'm advising you, and I read it to him. I explain it to him. Yeah. I'm advising you that this contract is not in your best interest. We were not able to make any changes to it. Is this one of the hardest parts of the job, just knowing a client's going to sign a crappy contract? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it isn't fun. Uh, And he readily signs this thing, Mm -hmm. signs the contract. Yeah. And goes on his way. About six months later, I get a phone call from the manager saying, hey, can we come in? Mm -hmm. "Eh, eh, Sure, come on in, whatever course the two of them come in they're sitting in front of me it's like get me out of this deal I'm like oh, I, I, I did they breach the contract right what does breach me I'm like, did they do anything that they weren't supposed to do he's like i don't like them i don't want to be on the label <laughs> I'm like, well you know that's not a reason to get off a deal right they don't have to let you out yeah he's like but you got to you got to get me out of this deal i'm like uh i don't think that we can do that Mm-hmm. He's like, he looks at me, he's like, is that because you're a Jew and the owner of the label is a Jew? Wow. And I looked at him like, um, this Jew told you not to sign the contract. Your cousin sitting next to you, he ain't a Jew. You want to talk about why you signed the contract? Talk to him. Right. Um, he then advised me that he was going to go visit the label with a baseball bat. Yeah. And I told him he wouldn't look good in an orange jumpsuit picking up garbage. Mm-hmm. Might have been the last time I ever heard from him. Mm-hmm. Um, was this uh, Suge Knight? <laughs> I, I, I'm sure he would never have gone into Suge Knight's <laughs> office with a baseball bat. Um, but you can't stop someone from doing a bad deal yeah. because there are bands that just feel like this is their chance. Um, 
I've had other bands where when they came to me and they were they were young in their career and they thought this is their one chance. Mm-hmm. They're a niche band in a certain genre that there isn't a wide uh, love for or you know place in the industry. And then all of a sudden that you know they do this deal because like hey you know they're we're signing with the foremost label in this genre. Yeah, it must be tricky for you because you see young artists come in. They've got stars in their eyes. They're all excited. They were offered their first deal. And you read the contract and you're like, this is crap. Well, it could be crap. It could. It also could be okay. But they ultimately, they're like, this is the only deal we're ever going to get. And then all of a sudden, when somebody else comes along two albums in or three mm-hmm. albums in, and you're like, well, look, you still have three more albums. Right. You're, you're bound to that first contract. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're... You know, say to them look yeah you did the deal because you thought this was the only thing mm-hmm. you know we weren't you weren't in a you didn't have the bargaining position to go and try to uh, right. negotiate a better deal um you know these things happen nowadays where it's so easy to get your music out there it must be uh a lot more easy for a lot more you know a lot more incentive for an artist to not sign that first deal and to self-release and maybe hire promotion so they get those bargaining chips for their second album. It definitely is something that has developed since the mid nine mid mid to late nineties. I would say late nineties. I don't remember a band, you know, not a band that I've ever represented. So you know, I'm not speaking from any true knowledge. But the Strokes were the first band that I knew who had, I believe, had a publicist before having a record deal Mm -hmm. yeah and you know that was like this new breed of bands Mm -hmm. who you know sort of went from a different direction of you know do a seven inch on a label blah 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 you know to you know we're going to build our name in a certain world and and develop it that way and start try to get a bidding war yeah yeah uh we all wanted a bidding war for our bands but you know the the what we our way of doing that was through this indie route. And you know, clearly I'm speaking on about the indie band. Right. As opposed to hip hop or country or pop, which are all, you know, totally different. Yeah. Totally different. They do their business in a different way. Yeah. Well, one of your artists, uh, Bright Eyes. Yes. He, I mean, kind of self-released. Saddle Creek Records was his label. He started self-releasing cassettes when mm-hmm. he was 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, and started touring nationally when he was 15. Wow. Uh, Saddle Creek was a... Col- started sort of as a collective. Um, it wasn't even a label. There was no business name, business. It was started, and if I'm remembering my history correctly, it was Rob Nansel who still runs the label. Yeah. And Mike Mogus and his brother, and I think Mike's brother was in a entertainment business class in college, and they decided to start the label for their friends. And one of the great things about Saddle Creek was that they all had really talented friends and Omaha had a really vibrant, very, very young scene. Right. So you had people like Connor and the faint and cursive who were lullaby for the working class who were working incredibly hard and were touring nonstop. And they weren't 
necessarily looking for you know the publicist thing to get a record deal and all that they were very happy mm -hmm. like doing their thing yeah. when i met connor in 98 99 oh, wow. um he was touring 10 months out of a year how old was he at that point uh he i think he was just over 18 oh, wow. um yeah he's 38 now so yeah, he would have been 18, 19 at that point. Now, were they looking for a record deal or looking to make their record label Saddle Creek more business official? I met Connor because he was, there was a publishing deal mm -hmm. that was coming down the pike and he was looking for somebody. Right, right. And he and Rob Nansel, Connor and Rob Nansel were sort of reaching out to different people looking for names of attorneys. And now, a publishing deal is totally separate from, from the record, record deal. deal. Yeah, it's just where someone owns part part uh, of, of all of your songs of the underlying song. Yes, right. Not the mechanical recordings of the songs, but the actual songs. Yes, yeah. exactly. And at least the the story, the apocryphal story, is that they reached out to seven people, and five of the seven, I were clients of mine. Mm -hmm. um, I had. Early on in, in that sort of 90 to 2000, cornered a certain market mm -hmm. uh, of indie punk rock labels and artists, and uh, which I loved. I, yeah, it was the music genre that I, I listened to, is what I played on the radio, is what I was writing about in my fanzine. You know, this was the world that I was living in. And uh, so they sort of reached out to these people and they all said, oh, yeah. Call, call Matthew, and and that's how we we ended up hooking up. Mm -hmm. um, so this was about six years after Monsterland. Yeah, and in that six year period of time, I, I was working with a lot of small labels. Mm -hmm. uh, in part because labels I found to be very. Um, but your the first record deal you uh, helped with. Was a major was label a major deal. label deal. And I thought every deal was going to be a major label deal. Mm -hmm. I was really psyched that you know, hey man, this is going to be easy. Right, it's not necessarily easy. Is there more money gained on your end from a major label deal? Oh yeah. yeah. Well, any deal that you know, the more money of an advance is the more money you make. Right. So. So the incentive from your end would be to only deal with major label artists. The really. incentive is to get the best deal possible, mm -hmm. whether it's with an indie or a major just happens to be what it whatever it might be right uh so the fact that you're dealing with only or mainly indie labels indie artists really says that something about you you're not a greedy person or i'm just really fucking dumb yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh just ask my wife uh but yeah i mean and you love the artists i love the artists and i love the music and i yeah. love you know doing what i do so but what i found out very quickly was labels would stick by you labels you know if you found a record label and you were doing their business and you did it quickly and you did it correctly and mm -hmm. didn't overcharge them labels would stick with you for years um on the other hand artists you could i, I could find an artist you know i'm not going to call out any other lawyers by name but you know i could find an artist and i was young i'd been doing this for you know a year or two three years and you'd find an artist and you'd be like getting people to come see them play at, you know, at the time at, 
at Brownies or under Acme, whatever CBGB, you know, club right. that you're getting. And then, you know, you get some interest and then all of a sudden it would be like, get a call from them saying, um, we, we, we kind of, um, we really like you, but, um, you know, we just got, we, 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 you know, we got introduced to this guy or this woman and, you know, they represent name, you know, any big band in the mid nineties. And and they say they really want to work with us. And, you know, we like you, but yeah, we, we really feel like we need to do this. Mm. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, whatever they represented these bands and I did not. Mm -hmm. Um, and they made the move. So there was a point where my focus was very much on representing labels, indie labels out there because they would stick by and they would not jump ship to other lawyers. Right. Um, and then over the years, but then you're not working with the artists. Oh yeah. In a sense, working against them, against them. Um, but as I like to think, none of my labels were scumbags. Right. Um, I have a no scumbag policy. <laughs> uh, for I many saw that reasons. on the welcome mat. Yes, so welcome exactly. No scumbags allowed. No scumbags allowed, exactly. <laughs> no, I've always had the belief that like, when, the few times that I've represented labels that were, or managers that were, it would always be an unfun situation. Because mm. you know, if they were greedy, if they were looking for too much, my view was, you know, look, you especially within this scene, if someone's going to make money, we should all make money. Right. If no one's making money, then no one makes money. I, but, I believe in the possibility of win-win situations. Yeah. And, you know, especially with the, you know, this indie punk rock scene that started, you know, in, in the eighties going into the nineties, you know, it, it was working shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. in this glorified way. And when I had labels that got greedy, and try to, you know, take things that they shouldn't have been taking. My answer to them was, look, if the band gets big, they're going to fight back. Right. And, you know, it's not going to be pretty. You know, you have the power today, but, you know, if they get power, this is going to become a mess. Right. Um, a PR mess. A legal mess, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, I've definitely stayed away from those kinds of labels. Uh, but... You know, but if some artist signs, say, a five-record deal, then their second record goes huge, and they're only collecting like a $10,000 advance on each label, but they're making several millions, the label doesn't have to renegotiate with them. They do not. But mm-hmm. you know, generally speaking, no one wants an unhappy artist. Right. Um, so they I, My assumption, and again, I did not, I did not represent Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh-huh. But I can assure you that when Hootie and the Blowfish came out and their first album sold 14 million copies, mm-hmm. Atlantic Records probably did not look at their advance on their second album and say, oh, uh, here's 100,000. Right. I'm sure they, they said, you sold 14 million records, you can fucking have whatever you want. Right. You want to keep you know, them happy. Or likewise, even if you're on an indie label and this the advance on LP2 is 10,000 dollars and you sold a hundred thousand records they're not going to sit there and say yeah you know we're going to hold you to fifteen thousand because again people don't want unhappy artists right um which isn't to say that you don't they won't drop you or or that they'll drop you just because you want to be dropped because that's just not good business right um you know and that goes into the whole kesha dr luke thing which 
I don't know if I'm necessarily qualified <laughs> or willing to discuss. Um, but no, I mean, and, and most of the indie labels especially started when they were doing, you know, one, two, three records. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they weren't doing five album deals. Right. Um, they were just uh, conduits to get a band to a major label. Or live in this glorified world of being in an indie. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are bands that spent their whole lives on on labels like, you know, Saddle Creek, Barsook, Merge, right? Uh, Polyvinyl Car Park, yeah, like these labels that you know secretly can where you know this is a home. Yeah, that, you know, not every band wants to be on uh, on a major label. Not all bands want to do what it takes to be on a major label, right? Uh, or even have to answer to them, or to answer them because they 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 believe that they're artists, right? Uh, is that an infuriating thing? This because there is this conce- perception of I'm an artist, I'm anti corporate, and here you are trying to facilitate business. An artist, the, the, or... there's a, a, a uh, an angel devil thing with many bands. There are a lot of bands who just sit there and say, "I want to smoke weed and play Xbox," right? And then try to figure out why they're not successful, right? Well, you're not successful because you're not working, you're not touring. 10 months out of a year. Right. Uh, you're not willing to do what it takes. Um, there's a great book called Kill Your Friends mm-hmm. about the English, uh, a, a novel about the music industry in England. Crappy movie, great book. Mm-hmm. And there's a discussion about... What did we learn from this book? Well, there, there was a, a discussion about the, the A&R person signs a, a girl group who are... are a bunch of uh, how Lidettes, you know, they're, they're just like, you know, drunken sort of, Hey, they can sing, but they're not brilliant. But there's a discussion about like, I think they, they name check you two and spice girls. And it's like, and there's this great line about, they would swim through a swimming pool filled with sharks, with hypodermic needles filled with AIDS to get to a morning show for more publicity. Right. These are bands that will do whatever it takes to be successful. Yeah. Very few bands have that. Very few artists have that drive. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that drive, and then you sit there and say, well, why is this other band more successful? Right. It's like, well, they're touring their asses off. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, coming out of the indie scene, they were willing to sleep on floors. Yeah. They were willing to, you know, not have a day job mm-hmm. and not have girlfriends and touring nonstop. You know, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to put that time and energy in, you know, you're, you're putting your, doing yourself a disservice. Do you ever have to give that uh, lesson often. to bands? Yeah. Often. And, you know, some bands get it and some bands really just want to ha- have fun and, you know, smoke weed and mm-hmm. play their Xbox. Yeah. Uh, you're you're an entertainment lawyer in an interesting time because, I mean, everyone knows the music industry has changed so much. So what a deal, what a fair deal looked like in the early 90s is probably totally different than what it looks like now. And there's probably a lot more intricacies with digital rights and streaming and all of this and the labels aren't making the money they used to. How do you keep up with all these changes? without breaking the hearts of the artist? Well, keeping up with it is actively talking to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't work at a large firm. Right. Um, 
I, I spent a, a time in the late nineties, um, hanging out at a firm in the city, talking to people, um, a couple of days a week, uh, sort of sitting there and learning. I, I found a rabbi. Everyone needs a rabbi. Whatever you're doing in life, uh, find a rabbi, find a mentor who will teach you how to do what you want to do. Mm -hmm. There's no shame in asking for help. Again, back to the attorney from, for Atlantic records who called me up and, you know, was willing to do this. Uh, I found two people, uh, after that who invited me into their offices to spend time. One was a very well-known, um, very hot attorney, mm -hmm. um, who I didn't really get anything out of because he wasn't teaching me how to look at a contract. Mm -hmm. uh, his idea of doing this was like finding bigger advances, right? which is you know, always a good thing. The second person I, I went to work with sat me down and over a four year period of time showed me how to be an entertainment attorney mm -hmm. and, you know, went through contracts, thousands of contracts. And, you know, he was my rabbi. Yeah. And I sat at his feet for, for years learning. I wasn't really a rabbi. No, he was a not. metaphorical yes, rabbi. Met metaphorical <laughs> rabbi. And, and I sat at his feet and one of the problems with sitting at any mentor's feet is every once in a while you get kicked in the head. Right. I got tired of getting kicked in the head and, you know, decided that was enough. Uh -huh. um, I also at that point had enough clients that I didn't need to be doing it. Um, and hypothetically got enough knowledge. However, I would still rely on him every once in a while uh, over the years. And, you know, it goes to the fact that if anyone ever calls me and asks me a question, I'm always willing to answer it because these gentlemen before me were able, were willing to give me their time, their knowledge. Right. Um, and now because I'm not part of a large firm, there's a, a circuit, there's like a you know, bunch of probably five to 10 lawyers that we're all sort of working on our own, mm -hmm. uh, outside of a large firm situation. And we regularly call each other up to like, have you done this? Have right. you seen this? You know, what are you, know, you getting for what this? are you getting on this kind of yeah. deal? Or, you know, this clause, I don't like I'm reading this clause. What the hell does this mean? Right. You know, and, and, and well, like, how do you negotiate with Spotify? I mean, Spotify gives artists like six tenths of one penny per stream. You don't, you don't not negotiate with Spotify. You can't negotiate with them. Uh, you don't negotiate with iTunes. Mm -hmm. you know, these are not companies that you negotiate with. They say, this is what we're doing. You don't need really negotiate with YouTube. Uh, and by and large, this is all stuff that goes through their uh, labels distributor. So, you know, we have a record label. Our distributor is X. Our distributor is ADA, mm -hmm. which is part of Warner Music Group. Our distributor is InGrooves, uh, whatever it might be. And so they're your conduit towards physical stores, what's left of them and digital oh, So platforms. you're not dealing with distribution. So often you're not dealing with directly with distribution. You're not trying to get the records into the stores. Mm. Um, and, but those distribution deals need to be negotiated yeah. and signed. And you know, that again, that's something that I do. It is. Okay. Um, and, and look, I want to see what a deal is with Spotify cause I want to know what's in it. Yeah. Um, but you're not necessarily, uh, 
doing the deal directly with them. Is this a problem that you hear from artists that they want to get more money from Spotify and other streaming services? Everyone wants more money. Right. Um, and, you know, I should say more of a fair amount of money. I mean, six tenths of one penny is nothing. Yes. I mean, you know, you sit there and you're like, how many streams do I need to, you know, have to to uh, qualify? Um, and the answer is, um, and I want to make sure I have these numbers correct in my head. Fifteen hundred streams equals one album download. Right. So for every album, mm-hmm. to count as an album for sales. You have to have fifteen hundred streams. Um, Even that sounds low, fifteen hundred. Well, but think about what you need to get to get to fifteen hundred, or think about what it what fifteen hundred full album streams. No, of individual tracks. Uh huh. But think about what it would take to get to you know a million album sales when you're doing that. It's like you know, the, it is uh, the numbers are so skewed towards the digital provider. Right. Um, and not in favor of either the record label or the artist. Yeah. And, and it is a sad reality of where we are in the music industry today. I is mean, this yeah, something that's on your shoulders to explain to the artists? To the artists and to the record label, why right. they're not seeing more. And, and ultimately the answer is, it is what it is. We mm-hmm. don't have that power. We're not the digital provider. We do not have the ability to bring the music directly to the consumer on that level. Right. And this is why you're seeing more artists tour more or sell tickets for more money. Which, you know, gets to be even more abhorrent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you're sitting there saying, oh, yeah, ticket prices are going to be, you know, 50 75 and $100 for you know, some indie bands. Like, you know, it's like, but, but I used to go to see these bands, you know, wherever at, at you know, at Maxwell's or, you know, the Ritz and, you know, there were, you know, a band that was expensive was 10 bucks. Right. And now like the same level band playing someplace, you know, is $45. Mm-hmm. Like, well, who, the, who can fucking afford that? No wonder it's, you know, getting priced out. Yeah. Was, is there a solution? Get rid of Donald Trump. No. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's a different if question. If only he cared about the musicians as much as the coal miners. Yes, exactly. Um, sorry. I'm not sure if that was really an answer to anything. <laughs> However, you know, I haven't checked my, you know, you know the internet in the last two hours. So, you know, he might be out already. Uh, but there is some truth to that. I mean, like, he cares so much about the jobs the coal miners lost, where musicians have lost a lot, too, yes. because of changing industries. Well, yeah, you know, and, and yes, and it is changing technology and changing industry, and you know people ignore the fact that the culprit isn't necessarily outsourcing. The culprit isn't you know people buying less records. Or, it, it is technology. Mm-hmm. Technology has just made it easier. Yes, Napster made it easier for people to download music for free. Right. Um, I was never a big Napster person. I don't think. Um, my Mac SE that I had mm-hmm. was able to, you know, connect into the internet to do it at the time. Um, but, you know, as it's developed, you know, technology has done this. It is not necessarily the record labels who have gotten greedier. However, the record labels have done things. And we'll circle back to what you were just 
asking about have, how deals have changed. There was a point, and uh, scratch that. There was a point where record labels came up with the concept of doing a 360 deal. Yep. This mythical thing where they got to participate in all revenue streams. Right. Our argument is, why are we participating in all revenue streams? Without us, you wouldn't have these other streams. You wouldn't be able to tour if you didn't have a record out and all the work and money we put into it. It's like, well, if you're putting in all this money into putting out the record, then why aren't you selling more fucking records? Right. Rather than taking part of our touring money, a part and, of and our merch. And if we, God willing, are, are pretty or good looking, uh, our modeling career or oh, they our, get part of that too, or, right. you know, our acting career, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. they want to participate in a 360. Any revenue generated pursuant to your acting, your entertainment activities, we get a piece of. Are you not seeing that much, that happen much anymore? I think labels, there's still labels who do it, and it's mm-hmm. still part of doing a deal. Uh, it can be, depending on which labels you're looking at. Um, but it's not a necessity in the way that it was four years ago, mm-hmm. and when it really was a, like a requirement from a lot of labels. Um, the first time I saw a 360 deal, I hadn't done one before and I called up an attorney who I know and I was sort of saying like oh my god this is bad this is blah 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 and she's like does your artist want to sign with this kind of label and I'm like yeah she's like that's the deal right you don't have a choice Mm. so therefore you negotiate the deal that's in front of you and that's true you negotiate the deal in front of you you could sit there and wish for something different but if this is the deal this is what you do. Around the time this was happening, didn't Madonna do a deal for like $10 million flat fee or something? She just got a flat fee and then any money she made just went to the label. I don't remember. I don't have an answer on that. Yeah, I might. my number might be wrong. but For Madonna, it was probably $100 million. Right. But yes. Um, you know, REM did you know, their, yeah, I think it was a $100 million deal mm-hmm. with, uh, with Warner. Yeah, it's like these things, you know, bless them. Yeah. If I have an artist who signs a $100 million deal and I get 10% of that deal, yes, I'm very happy. There's going to be even more vinyl in this room. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so when you, so let's, uh, so after the Monsterland band, you were working more for labels? I had a bunch of indie labels yeah. uh, who I was representing. And then uh, at some point, did you want to not work for the labels and work more for the artists? No, I just started having more artists come back to me. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you do if there's an art? If you're working for a label, you can't work with any of the artists that are on the label. You try to stay away from any conflicts. Right. Um, every once in a while, there would be something where uh, there would be a band who I would have that I would be like, I'd bring to one of my label and say, you know, this is a la- this band is perfect for you. Mm, right. And then you try to figure out a way of, you know, stepping back and letting you know somebody else do the deal. Mm. Um, Things like that, where so you're not having that conflict, right? Uh, conflicts abound. Yeah, there there are conflicts in this world, uh, but you try to stay. You know, there's this concept of a Chinese wall. You try to put something between you and mm-hmm. and the conflict. Um, there are easy times when, you know, you you know, in some states they allow you to uh, have a waiver where it just says, look, you know, in the past. I've represented you as an artist and I've represented you as a record label in this negotiation. I'm just going to represent you as the record label and the artist is going to get somebody else. Right. 
and you get everyone to sort of wave it. Some states allow it, some states don't. Um, and you try not to, you know, again, you don't want to be a scumbag because then the artist is going to look at you and say, wow. Like, mm-hmm. First off, why are you representing a scumbag label? Right. And B, why would you put me in a position to sign to a scumbag label? Right. So, you know, it definitely is... Um, it's something that you want to not get involved with where, mm-hmm. where those kind of conflicts. Yeah. So if there's people that you think are scumbags, you just try not to work with them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And look, there are artists who are scumbags. I'm sure. Yeah. Not just, you know, not just, you know, labels or publishers or managers. Yeah. There are plenty of artists out there who are, who are fairly cutthroat and, you know, are willing to do things that are inappropriate or just difficult people. There are plenty of difficult people. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's um, the in that sort of later period, you know, and especially then once I got Connor and Bright Eyes as a client, mm-hmm. that was my equivalent going into the two thousands that these other people had in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Like I now had that calling card, right? Where I could be like, well, look, I, you know, I'm not, I, I don't go out and poach clients off of another attorney that's i don't find that to be in good taste mm-hmm. um so if somebody has a lawyer like if they come to me that's one thing as long as they're not being represented by a person who i'm friends with um who's part of my little clique of you know lawyers right uh, but he was the biggest selling indie artist of but, the 2000s probably. but you know he he was he sold a lot of records and yeah. he was a he was a you know he's a respected name so you know Right. I got plenty of you know new clients because of that, mm-hmm. and I started moving back in that direction. Right, and yeah, you know, some things work, some things don't. You know, and you helped negotiate his uh, publishing deal, yeah, but not the record deal. I, I've I've done multiple record deals for him over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, he has signed, yeah, you know, probably you know, f- five or six different deals of different kinds over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, he's had the pleasure and respect of the industry to allow him to do short-term deals where he could do other things. Um, so there was a point where we did a, in 2007, we did a deal with Polydor records in the UK, mm-hmm. um, which was a very exciting thing to do. Uh, you know, recently he was on none such here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, over the years, there were just other random, you know, there were deals that merged there. Yeah, you know, Saddle Creek had a certain segment of his Yeah, wh- that was his label. Why did he veer away from Well, that? it wasn't his label. It was, it was really, in the end, it was Rob Nansel's label, and it still is. Uh-huh. Um, again, it was sort of this collective thing. I think at one time, uh, all the band, like, if they got music in, like all the bands would sit around or whoever was, wasn't on tour would sit around and make decisions on who would get signed. Oh boy. Um, and, and a big democracy. Yeah. That's, and you know, it seemed to work for you know, a period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Rob, it truly, you know, turned into Rob's record label and Rob runs, uh, Saddle Creek. And, uh, then Connor started a label with his manner, his, publisher at sony publishing was nate crankle who then after a period of time left sony to manage connor mm-hmm. and then the two of them started team love records together mm-hmm. uh where they again 
were putting out records by people who were all lots of friends of theirs. Mm-hmm. They put out the first Chetty Lewis solo album. Which huge, sold yeah. a lot of copies. Fantastic record. Yeah. My opinion, her best record that she did, but mm-hmm. opinions vary. And, um, and you know, he had that for a period of time. I, I, she changed producers. I um, think that was a big part of it. You know, that, th- these things happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, at the moment, you know, he ended up giving up his part of, of team love. And, you know, he does what he wants to do. He gave up part of team love or saddle creek of team love. Uh huh. And he does what he wants to do. This yeah. is his, you know, he's been able to run a career in a way that he wants to do. So, mm-hmm. uh, this might be a little touchy, but I remember at some point he was falsely accused by a woman of rape yes and it turned out to be a lie she was lying but he did get major backlash and uh the publishing company dropped him there was a major there was a yeah and it's the difference between 2017 2018 and 2015 Mm -hmm. is huge i don't know what it would have been like now Mm -hmm. then there was a backlash and there were certain outlets that uh, came out against him mm-hmm. and wouldn't listen to his side of the discussion. Right. And which was very painful. Uh, sure. You know, at that point, you know, I, I'd known him for 15 years Um and you don't want to believe that any woman would lie about anything like that. Uh, but there was no point in, in the discussion where I ever questioned whether the veracity of her statement. Um, but, you know, it, it was not easy for him. It was devastating. I mean, it was, it's just not an easy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, especially knowing full well that you did not do it. Right. Um, and the problem is that even after she recanted her statement, um, if you do a Google search, it's there. Yep. Not not the, her recanting it, but the, the, the fact, the act itself. And as much as you want to go back to every single publication who wrote about it right. and say, look, you wrote about this. She's now recanted. You're obligated to write that she recanted. Update that shit. And, and their answer is, no, it's not our obligation. Mm. That, that's not our story. It's less salacious. So it, it becomes very difficult. And you definitely, uh, you know, it, it happens time and again. Um, but the publishing company dropped them, right? What happens in a situation like that? Do they... they? They didn't drop him. They didn't drop him because of that. And it was, yeah, that's not a topic I want to do. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that political. I mean, because the reality is, whether or not that figured into it, um, I, I don't. I can't tell because I'm not there. Right. Um, but as far as I know, that 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 was not the reason, and they did not drop him. We agreed not to uh, renew the contract. Mm-hmm. Is is the answer? Yeah. Um, but they, you know, at no point did they drop him. But you know, that's something I don't necessarily want to. To, to go into on that. Um, yeah, I remember the woman recanting the uh, her statement 
received a lot less press. Yeah. And, and, you know, the problem is that there's a certain kind of press that is very tuned into the topic of, of rape because it, it should, Yeah, you know, it is a, it is a problem. It's, a, it's an end. It's an epidemic in this country and in the world. And it's something that should be discussed. Yeah. However, when someone makes the allegation and then it's recanted, you know, it, it is equally as important to make sure that that's known. Right. Because it does a disservice. It is to every woman who has the, the term legitimate rape is, is, has been used uh, badly mm-hmm. by certain people, but who were actually raped or who were assaulted, whatever it might be. It does them a disservice because it, it puts questioning right. into the minds of everyone else. Yeah. Um, there was a point where there were some men's groups who I, who I really think tried to champion him as like, oh, look, you know, this person got accused and, you know, men need to stand up together and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no. <laughs> it's like, no. We're, not, we're not part of that. Don't, yeah, don't yeah. try to get us into <laughs> that. Right. We are not in that world. Yeah. You know, this is me. This is personal. Yeah. And, and you know. And it was it was a horrible seven month ordeal, eight month ordeal, mm-hmm. um, and it's an ordeal that you know Connor and his family, mm-hmm. you know, live with on a daily basis because you know it was incredibly hard. Right now, does that woman have to like? Does she have to pay any penalty or anything like that? I don't know if I can answer that okay and, I, and i'm trying to remember, I, don't, I don't i think the answer was no um because that's not what we were looking for right um but i i, I can't answer that probably legally so don't so cut that one okay um what we were what we wanted was her recanting yeah publicly yeah yeah and, and saying look you know and i i'm sure somewhere on my computer i've got her statement mm-hmm. and what it was would so yeah, but I this never happened. I'm sorry that I made the statement, and I'm sorry that I put him and his family through this, and I'm sorry to all all people who've yeah you know, this has happened to in the past. Yeah, and to women that it's yeah. actually happened yeah. to. Yeah, um, and to find a silver lining. I mean, I guess he's lucky that it happened then and not now. There's no silver lining, but he's lucky that it happened then and not now because now now it's you know, it's automatic. You know, yeah, it's like you'll lose everything. You know, and you there's so much not... news that there's no way her recanting yeah. would even touch the service. No, you know, <laughs> that's true. I mean, you know, as much as you want to, you know, try to get you know that word out, mm-hmm. you know, Trump has done something else today, or there, you know, there's ten other musicians who've been accused of it, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and that becomes in you know a whole other issue because you know it does start coming up more. It cannot be easy being a musician, being a comic, being anyone whose job is to be on the road, who's on stage, who gets adulation, who then comes off stage with a some kind of persona or some kind of air about them and that they're men, women, whatever, looking at them saying, ooh, Mm. and 
you know, I, I'm off, I'll tell bands like, just, just don't. Just, you know, it, it sounds like it's a fun idea. <laughs> hey, man, you know, <laughs> stay you out know, of trouble. Stay out of trouble. <laughs> yes, bang, banging girls at every gig right. it, you know, sounds like fun. But, you know, guess what? You're just going to get yourself in trouble. Yeah. You know, there, there's something's going to happen mm-hmm. and it's going to be, you know, somebody's underage or somebody right. is, you know, going to say that you force themselves because they interpret it they might be interpreting it differently than you are yeah and this is not putting it on you know on the person who's making the accusation because you're you're coming off the stage you've been drinking you've been doing whatever you're doing you might feel that you're not re- you might not be reading the signals in the same way right yeah um or you you could just be a degenerate scumbag mm-hmm. And if you're a degenerate, come back. Just, you know, control yourself. <laughs> damn it. Um, but what you don't want to do is, you know, go around having sex with everybody on tour because you're going to get yourself in trouble. There's going to be a problem. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's more and more a topic that is, you know, you know, part of the fabric of what goes on today. Look, you know, we all know the stories of, you know, the Stones or Led Zeppelin or yeah. Bowie having sex with 13 and 14 year olds in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Right. Yet they're still considered icons. Right. Um, you know, whatever Jimmy Page or Robert Plant, you know, locking up a 14 year old for, you know, months at a time. It's like, yet they're looks seen as the paragons of the music industry. Rock, rock stardom yeah. is very different. Uh, you can't do that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, totally different yardstick, different context. And now we just give them all a pass. Um, mm-hmm. You know, nowadays you got to really enjoy playing music if you want to be a rock star. <laughs> yes, but you know, most bands are young. Mm. Most bands are dumb, right? You know, and I say that lovingly and respectfully because <laughs> right. look, uh, I'm not 23 years old. I'm not 24 or 18 right. and on tour and drinking and you know whatever, smoking weed and mm-hmm. you know having you know, girls throw themselves. I know it's hard to believe that there aren't girls throwing themselves at middle-aged attorneys. Um, <laughs> but as a music attorney, you do get to party with the bands and hang out and be backstage and enjoy some of the uh, fun green room activities. I drink cranberry and club soda most of the time. Wild. Um, but that's, yeah, and, and literally that's because there's a certain point where I realized that I drive to gigs. Right. And I'm not going to sit there and get drunk and drink and drive. Right. So to me, I'd much rather just have cranberry and club soda. Right. And back when you were just getting started in the 90s, was that a, a job perk? Hanging out? Yeah. yeah. I love hanging out. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Because <laughs> um, I like hanging out talking about music. Right. I could sit there and talk about music nonstop for hours. Mm-hmm. You know, it's part of what I do. So hanging out with bands, is you know, you're sitting there talking about whatever it is, what, what's happening. Yeah. If you love someone's music and you meet them, and they turn out to be jerks. Isn't that a big bummer? Does it yeah. affect the way you listen to their music? Can it ruin their music for you? I've never met somebody who was jerky enough that I said, God, I never want to hear their music again. Mm-hmm. Or I want to throw their music out. But I, I've met musicians mm-hmm. who I didn't necessarily love, but I, I met them and realized, God, you're just a total douche. Yeah. And like, I would not, like, I would not represent, not, not because like they're, they're greedy or, or, or 
underhanded. It's just like, you've just got a bad fucking disposition. Right. And I don't, I wouldn't want to be hanging out with you. Yeah. And there are people like that. And you're just like, okay, you know, have I, but I've met musicians where like, I idolize their music and yeah, I met them and yeah, it was like, well, wow, that person's a curmudgeon asshole. <laughs> um, David, do you hear it whenever you hear them singing? No, but I, I don't because I still love their music. Oh, David nice. Thomas uh-huh. from Perubu. Uh-huh. I love Perubu. And I remember seeing them play in 88 in Seattle with John Cale opening at the Showbox. And it was their first reunion tour. And I was just so excited because I had never seen them when they were together the first time around. And I brought a copy of their first album and he, he sort of glared at me as I asked him to autograph. And he's like, what, you could sell it? Uh-huh. It was pre-eBay, so it couldn't have been, uh, you sell it on you. He sort of gave me that look like, right. what, you going to sell it? And I'm like, no, I, I love this album, please. Like, yeah. um, and, and he did, and the rest of the band, and I cherish that album today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, he wasn't, you know, the nicest of people. And then years later, I interviewed him, and it... Um, it reinforced that uh, that opinion of him uh-huh. that wow this he is very curmudgeonly yeah but it, you know look it could be part of his persona right. um, you know some musicians are really curmudgeonly some just don't like signing things yeah my my number one my my number one musician hero is Jonathan Richmond mm-hmm. Jonathan Richmond is not necessarily a person who wants to autograph things from what I could tell you know it's just not where his head is at. Yeah. And he was, well, he did sign a bunch of things at a gig at a in-store years ago, but he wasn't, you know, it wasn't like he wanted to do so. Well, there's, there's a big line between signing something and just being a straight up dick. Yeah. And, um, but you know, for, you know, other people, you know, it's again, it's not easy being on the road. It's not easy having people push things in your face every day to get autographed. Right. Or people asking you really dumbass questions. Yeah. I'm like, sorry. Like this Ask, interview? <laughs> asking the same dumbass question, right. but a different face asking it 15 times a day. Yeah. Um, or nowadays with the getting a picture of you at every yeah. moment. Yeah. <laughs> More news. Yes. Uh, so, look, you know. Not everybody's nice. Not everyone yeah. is a sweet person. I have clients who are the sweetest people and like will sit down and autograph things um, for, for hours. Uh, there was a point in time um, where I worked with an artist and uh, like 18 months, two years. It was a good relationship. It just ended. Um, I was... The, the the band's fourth lawyer, they ended up having a fifth lawyer. Wow. You know, there's some bands that are like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this artist would do a gig and sit down at the merch booth and sign every single autograph and take every single photo until the last person walked away. Mm-hmm. If it was a half hour, if it was an hour, if it was three hours, they would do that. That's great. That's an artist who's going to get a fan for life. Right. And again, like that concept of touring for, you know, 10 months out of the year. If you're going to sit there and autograph things for your, your fans and mm-hmm. willingly do that and willingly have your photo taken, that's somebody who's going to love you forever. That's a band that's going to you know tell their friends like, oh, my God, that person was so cool. Like mm-hmm. I went up to them and like I knitted them a hat and gave it to them and they put it on and I took a picture with them and you know, like. Like this is this is 
a way of you know getting fans. You know, there are people who are truly great with their fans. Right, the artist should have been like, "Thanks for the hat. I'm going to sell it on eBay." <laughs> yes, yeah, but you know, look, I, she might have afterwards. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, this this was someone who truly had the support of her fan base. Yeah, and also truly loved what she was doing on stage. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, not how, all. How many artists have you worked with? Have you counted them through the years? You've had your own practice since, when would you say you since went 90. full time? 90. Yeah, 90, 91. Mm -hmm. um, I guess 91. Um, I've probably represented, you know, 50 or 60 labels and, you know, hundreds of bands. Amazing. Um, yeah, on, on one level or another. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Have you, with the changing of the music industry, have you had to kind of take less for you as there's just less money in the industry? Or have you had to find more creative ways for find, artists to make money? Find more creative ways. And, you know, sadly where, you know, advances were much higher at mm -hmm. a certain point yep. and those advances have gotten lower, you have to do more work to make the same amount of money. Right. So, you know, that is a a sad indictment of where the music industry is now because, you know, there was a point where, you know, hey, advances were legitimately much larger. Yeah. So you try to find, you try and find more attractive artists to sign so you can get them a modeling deal as well, right? Um, I, I've never used that as a criteria. <laughs> uh, but uh, Julia from Sunflower Bean uh -huh. is uh, Julia and Rachel Trachtenberg from wooing are legitimate models who've done runway work and mm -hmm. i had her yeah. dad on the podcast oh yes you did yeah i saw that Jason in your list. yes yeah. um and they're they're models that you know they make a you know that's part of their gig in life right um you know and, and i'm happy to help them any way that i can with what they're doing on those things mm -hmm. uh and it look it, whatever it is that you do you know it, you could be writing novels as your you know secondary activity whatever it is you know there are bands that have multiple things going on right and you you know if if i'm qualified to do so i try to help facilitate whatever that is and to find a silver lining to that is it keeps your job exciting because yes. now you're forced to be more creative with it yes 100 percent. whether you like it or not no and i love it <laughs> yeah look, i, I want to learn i'm you know, back yeah. to school you know, I, I like learning it, right learning is fun you know you get to I never understood people who said that 
school is boring or school mm-hmm. is, you know, not, not fun. It's like, well, clearly you're just not taking the right classes. Right. Um, or you're not curious enough. Yeah. It's like, what do you want to be doing with your time? Mm-hmm. Um, Where do you see yourself in two years? <laughs> you get yeah. dad flashbacks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, probably sitting right here. Well, well, you yeah, look, when, when all of a sudden I realized I've been doing this since 91 and it's like, holy fuck, that's a long time. And that you've withstood the big hurricane of the music industry is. Yeah. Well, there, you know, there was a time when I was a young kid in it and then you know and i thought i was a young kid for a very long time mm-hmm. and then there was a point where it was like well i'm not a young kid but you know there's just like a generation younger and then there, those generations kept on building right and all of a sudden you're like what the hell what's what? going on like now like the older generation now they're maybe only like two generations <laughs> older right. than me or three you're generations the same age <laughs> and yeah you know, it's like you know I, I don't i don't wear a suit and tie i when i work right. when i worked in the city i actually wore a suit and tie mm-hmm. And, um, my father one day asked me why I didn't wear a suit and tie to the office. Cause even if he didn't have clients in, he would always wear a suit and tie. And I was mm-hmm. like, cause my clients don't pay me enough. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, I, you know what? They probably trust you less anyway. Yeah. I, it's, you know, I don't need to do that in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, um, you definitely work a, a lot harder because they're, um, or do a lot more things because there's, you know, that, that threshold, uh, of deals is not the same as it once was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's true. I mean, and you try to diversify and you find stuff that um, you might not have otherwise done. I, I've got one client who is involved in funding of shows. Mm-hmm. So I've done a bunch of stuff that dealing with off Broadway shows and shows that are repertory shows, uh, companies on the road. Um, another that is uh, in the middle of putting together a major music festival. I've done another, uh, for a long time, I've worked with a label called ATP. Mm-hmm. And um, ATP, the music festival, you know, is an international festival. And you know, I worked with them for years. So I got, you know, I learned that activity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, it all sort of comes back to this concept of, you know, I'm learning it through the music angle or getting involved with it because of the music angle. Right. But, you know, there are things that I've done because, you know, clients have come in, you know, it's like, Hey, now we've got X. Right. And, you know, if it's something I truly do not understand, I get somebody to help me mm-hmm. again. I'm not, I will, I would rather explain to a client that I do not have to know how to do it than to do it badly. It's noble. So, you know, if it means calling up an attorney who I know who knows how to do do X and having them explain it or mm-hmm. having them come in on a deal, it's better than screwing it up. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, can we uh, quickly plug your charity? Sweet Relief. Sweet Relief. Sweet Relief Musicians Fund is a wonderful organization. Um, it was started um, because Victoria Williams uh, got sick and... They were. They did uh, a benefit album, and then there was a second benefit album for Vic Chestnut, and it's an organization that helps musicians. It's it's literally Sweet Relief Musicians Fund mm-hmm. for musicians in need for healthcare. And, for healthcare, um, and it is shocking that there are musicians out there who don't have insurance, mm-hmm. who don't have when something happens, and they're they have no 
funds to do it, that there's somebody that they can try to go to. Um, you'll often find, and, and this is not a way of backtrack. A lot of people set up uh, GoFundMe pages, right? Um, and they'll have their fans like, you know, something happened. Uh, you know, their van rolled over, and they have multiple contusions and broken limbs, and they do a GoFundMe. What they don't realize is that's all taxable money, mm. and they usually don't think about it because they're not thinking about it in those terms. Sweet Relief is a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. You could have, you can do a directed fund where you know you're doing it through a company like an organization like Sweet Relief. So artists that are looking to do a GoFundMe don't do that. Go through Sweet Relief or or some other organization like it. Right. Um, but yes, yeah, Sweet Relief will help out these musicians who are in need because you know, they know how to work that system. Mm-hmm. They are a nonprofit. Um, do you work with uh, comedians as well? I'm not asking for myself. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer on that. Okay. Uh, but if there are uh, comedians who do need that kind of help, you know, I think that, it, you know, it would be worth a call where it would be worth um, at least asking, you know, and if they didn't have, know somebody, if they couldn't do it, maybe they would know right. the right party to do so. Um, yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. You know, the work that they do and their musicians who you would think, were would be set for life Mm -hmm. yeah and and you you know you go through a list of people who you know who need help because they seriously need help they do not have the money for their medical needs yeah and you know there was somebody from little feet Mm -hmm. and you're sitting there like little feet toured forever yeah how can can, it is the reality is a sad reality of being a musician it is is a very difficult thing to earn a real living beyond what you are uh, what you have to survive for today. I was talking to somebody yesterday say, and they were like, well, if I had a platinum record, I'd be set for life. I'm like, no. Not necessarily. A, there, there, a, there isn't that much revenue generated to set you for life. And B, unless you're really self-controlled, mm-hmm. you're never going to have that money around yep. for five years, 10 years, 20 years to, to be able to do it if you're Hootie and the Blowfish and you've sold 14 million records or 20 or 30 million records total in your career, you'd have to do a lot to blow through that cash. Mm-hmm. Not saying it's not, not impossible, but you know, those guys are, are, are pretty set for life because they're, and they're also very smart from what I've been told. But most musicians, you know, it is a live by the moment activity. Yeah. And you know, when something happens, when, when they get sick, when, you know, heaven forbid they get cancer or, you know, something happens where they fall off at stage and you'll break a limb. They're not in a position where they can afford to walk into a hospital or right. an emergency room. Best thing to do is book a European tour if you're feeling sick. <laughs> this way you'll, you'll get taken care of in a European hospital and not I, worry about it. Well, the, yes and no. Actually, I had a client who's... I had a client who got thrown from an, a van while touring in Europe uh-huh. and um, had multiple injuries. And it, it, ultimately, you know, it got resolved, but it was not as easy as one would think. Really? What country was that? In Spain. Okay, yeah. Um, but, you know, Sweet Relief does, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, you know, it's mm-hmm. like 
Well, there was the Bernie Worrell benefit a couple of years ago, um, which was a thrill to you know get to go to in in this uh, at uh, Irving Plaza, mm-hmm. and then there are smaller events like we did a small intimate night with uh, for Connor mm-hmm. um, a number of years ago, where Connor played at you know, it was like thirty people at mm-hmm. you know in somebody's incredibly beautiful swank apartment on on the Upper West Side. Nice. And it was it was a benefit show. And uh Lester Chambers from the Chambers Brothers mm-hmm. came and performed um and Jesse Harris um performed as well. That's good you have access to these great artists to raise money. Yes. That's good. I'll put a link to Sweet Relief in the show notes. Appreciate it's it. It's a good resource for people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, try to give back. Yeah. Whatever, whatever that means, you know, it's like, yeah. you, you know, it's, it's nice to, you know, it was an honor to be asked to be on the board there. Mm-hmm. And I jumped at the opportunity to do mm-hmm. whatever I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the things I learned by working with them uh, was to be a little more mature. Mm-hmm. In the sense that I, I, at one point I made a snide comment about some musician, um, a famous musician. Do you who, remember the comment? I said that they would appear for the opening of an envelope. Okay. Uh, it, it was like one of these people who just, you know, if, if there's a stage and you can be a guest artist on that stage, they are there right. with their guitar performing. Um, and I made a, some kind of snide comment like that. And the person, and legitimately, you know, they're like, Look, you know, they've done a lot for us. They're good people. Right. They've given us guitars they've autographed. They've invited people backstage. And I was like, you know, that that is a maturing thing on my part to mm-hmm. to, to realize that, you know, well, yeah, there are people out there who, you know, have a persona. And, you know, guess what? They're probably, look. I, they're, they're actually people. They're too. actually people. They're probably yeah. good people. And, you know, you know, it was not Bono. Uh-huh. But as much as I want to sit there and say, well, you know, Bono's a pretentious, sanctimonious asshole who thinks he's God. Right. I'm, I'm sure there are people that he's done really good things for. Exactly. He's done. He's raised more money than I have. Exactly. Yeah. He's still a pretentious, sanctimonious <laughs> person who thinks he's God. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, you know, and, you know, bless him for that which he's done. Right. But um, who am I to put him down? He's raised more money for yeah. charity and starving children or whatever. He's done more than I have for people. Just as long as I don't have to listen to his music. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that everyone, you know, whatever you can do, you know, in being on this, on the board of Sweet Relief is, is you know, is not, you know, I'm sure there's more I could do in life to, to help other people. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully at some point I get the opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we all can, you know, try to be a mensch. It is being a mensch. It's being being a, a, a man, being a, you know, stepping up. Yeah. Um, and if that's, you know, being a rabbi to someone, being a mentor, mm-hmm. you know, to somebody, what does it hurt? If someone calls you and asks a question in whatever you field you're in, if you're a lawyer and a younger lawyer calls, if you're a manager, if you're, if you're a young comedian and they call you and say, you know, how do I get into this certain circuit or whatever right. it is? taking 15 minutes to, to out of your day, you, you might be a pain in your ass because you're, you know, 
you want to be smoking weed and you know watch playing with your Xbox. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, it's like that fifteen minutes means so much more to that person who's calling. Yeah. Um, that's good. That, someone did that to you for you yeah. when you were younger. You're doing it for of other course. people. Yeah. And, and there are times when I, I've reached out to lawyers mm-hmm. in the same way that the Atlantic lawyer reached out to me, uh, who I've done deals with, where I'm less like, God, that person's bad. Uh-huh. They just don't know what they're doing. So you've reached out to them to offer help. And I've reached out afterwards. And how is that say, taken? Because it's unsolicited help. Yeah. And, and sometimes they, they accept it and they're very excited and happy. Sometimes and, they're defensive. Sometimes they're defensive. Oh, fuck you. Why are you calling me and telling me I did a bad job? Right. It's like, oh, cool. No harm, no foul. It's always a tricky situation because yeah. that happens on many different occasions and levels where you think yeah. you could help someone, but eh, you don't want to assume that they'd be open to it. You know, and my view is, you know, you should want to learn how to do what you're doing better. Hey, even say, if I, if I get something wrong in a contract and mm-hmm. someone wants to call me up and tell me, you know, hey, you blew this point. Right. I'd rather somebody tell me so I know how to do it correctly for the next one. Yeah, and you don't have to take their advice anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or at least not acknowledge it. Right. You take, you take <laughs> the advice, but you don't acknowledge it to give them the satisfaction. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, but you know, to me, it's, it's, it's all, you know, there should be some aspect of helping each other. And it doesn't matter what field you're in or what you're doing in life. If, you're, if you want to open a store, Mm-hmm. And you've never opened a store. Find somebody who has a store, right? You know, because you're naive. You think that you know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, you know, whatever it is that you think that you want to be doing in life, you know, I, I wish that when I was in high school that I knew about internships. Right? Yeah, you know, we didn't. It, it wasn't a thing. Yeah, there's that saying: find the person that is where you want to be yeah. and ask them how they got there. You know, one of the most uh, famous jazz recording studios was a mile from my high school. Mm-hmm. If I had realized that mm-hmm. at the time, I would have been like, can I work in this studio? Can I be an intern here? Or the French horn would have been a major <laughs> player yeah, in the yeah, jazz yeah, world. Exactly. You know, <laughs> Look, if I had realized that you could play jazz French horn, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I might have stuck with it. And I, I think you know, that's one of the... Sadly, there is no music education anymore, so it's mm-hmm. not even an issue um, in, in schools, Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it, 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 I, it, to me, it really does help to, to find somebody. And I, I have no problem calling somebody up and saying, you know, be it, it somebody at an indie label or somebody mm-hmm. who's another lawyer on, on, on my level or somebody who's a lawyer at a major label and say, has this ever occurred? Mm-hmm. Or when you've seen this, what do you do? Mm-hmm. They might say, I've never seen it either. This is the first time I'm hearing about this. You know, there's a, often lots of things where it's like, that's a really fucking good question. How did this not come up? Or how did I've never thought about that in this way? How can we figure out how to resolve it? Right. You never know until you ask. Thanks so much for uh, talking to me today. My pleasure. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. 
Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.